And so if you are familiar with tradition, Jewish tradition, you know that that is the intent of Kol Nidre service, Yom Kippur Eve service, that there is a very strong sense of being in God's presence um, and, and having awe, and actually more than just awe, having a sense of fear uh, because God is the judge and that on Yom Kippur, the final determination of who will live and who will die for the coming year is made. That's why we have the traditional greeting of Gmar Chatimatova. Uh, may you have a good sealing in a sense of you have been written and um, in God's book of life and now on, Rosh, on Yom Kippur, um, it's, it's sealed, it's a done deal uh, for you to have another year. There is a, a prayer that summarizes that. It's called Untane Tokef, um, which means let us acknowledge what is obvious, or should be obvious during the rest of the year, um, the power of the sacred day, Yom Kippur, the power of God in particular. And um, it, a it is actually designed to strike fear into those who, who hear and recite this prayer. Because it paints a picture of the heavenly court in which God acts as the judge. And it begins by stating the obvious, and that is none of us know how long we will live, how long we will die, and frankly, what our life will look like, how it will play out. You know, when you're younger, before you have gray hairs, you're convinced that you have a plan and that you have it worked out and by golly you'll go from A to, to B to C to D and then as you get a little bit more uh, maturity then you realize that yes you have the ability to accomplish certain things but there are clearly things that are frankly beyond you and that's part of this prayer who shall reach the end of his days and who shall not, who shall perish by water, and who shall perish by fire, who by earthquake, who by plague, who shall have rest, and who shall wander, and who shall be at peace, and who shall be pursued, etc., etc. It gets fairly grim, um, again, designed to strike fear. But I like this prayer because it doesn't stop there. It shifts into an attitude of adoration of who God is. With the following, uh, I'm quoting from some of it. For your praise is in accordance with your name. Again, remember that God's name just doesn't mean a name per se, but it refers to his qualities, to his nature, to his attributes. You're difficult to anger and easy to appease exact opposite of what we normally think or, or the bum rap that God receives in our culture that he is easy to, ang to get angry and difficult to appease. For you do not desire the death of the condemned but that he turned from his path and live. Very scriptural um, sentiment because it refers 
back to the sayings, the statements made by the prophets, particularly Ezekiel, where God reaches out to those who are foolishly rebellion and says to them, in essence, why shoot yourself in the foot? Why harm yourself by going off the cliff? Turn, turn, turn to me, and you'll live. Again, this prayer reiterates that, and then it states that until the day of his death, the, uh, the, pr the worshiper's death, you wait for him. Should he turn, you will receive him at once. In truth, you are their creator, and you understand the inclination, for they are but flesh and blood. But you are king, God who lives for all eternity. There's no limit to your years, no end to the length of your days, no measure to the host of your glory, no, under no understanding the meaning of your name, and our name has been called by your name. Act for the sake of your name and sanctify your name through those who sanctify your name. And you may be aware of the fact that on Yom Kippur in some traditional synagogues, it's customary for people to prostrate themselves. Again, all that is the clear sense of the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of God in relationship to who we are, obviously very, very much finite and very much um, sinful beings. And um, again, the atmosphere is that of fear because none of the worshipers in a traditional Yom Kippur Eve service know what God has for them life or death for that matter for that matter neither do the rest of us and so this atmosphere of fear of god by the way it's very biblical um because fear in scripture doesn't have the connotation of a demoralizing a paralyzing kind of fear but rather has the sense of respect and deference and reverence for god um, something, again, that is very much conveyed through Jewish tradition and for folks who come from a Christian background, um, that isn't something that is understood often because the, the connotation is Jesus is my buddy and uh, God loves me and therefore I can do pretty much as I please. And uh, God will either forgive me or put up with me, one of the two. And folks like to quote passages that are very touchy-feely, and there are plenty of those, such as in the book of Hebrews, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and help to, uh, for us in a time of need. That's from the book of Hebrews. What folks often forget, though, is the fact that the same writer makes a very pithy, very stark statement, saying, our God is a consuming fire. In other words, you really don't want to mess with God. Um, and again, this is something, unfortunately, it's become very alien 
um, to folks who come from a, uh, the church background. Again, I, I'm generalizing, but I see a lot of that. Um, and reality is that God certainly has the power and the means to com communicate to us and discipline us. And so the point is not to be in abject fear, but the point is to learn what Scripture actually does teach, not just Jewish tradition, and that is to have a sense of awe of who God is. We need to recapture the sense of awe when we stand in the presence of God. Yes, we want special benefits from God. Yes, we want special relationship, connection, intimacy with God. But we don't understand that that doesn't come cheaply. And so the question simply is, how, how do we learn who God is? How do we learn to stand in awe of him? How do we learn to worship him and have more than a flat two-dimensional understanding of who God is, but rather have a fuller three-dimensional sense of who God is. So for me, it takes me back to places in the Bible that talk about what does it look like to stand in the presence of God. And one of the best examples that I have that I see in Scripture is that of Solomon, who does stand in the presence of God. What you may know, if you know anything about the history of the time, is that uh, the kings around Israel were considered to be absolute monarchs. In fact, um, in many instances, they were considered to be divine. And uh, that certainly isn't the case when you come to the nation of Israel because the kings of Israel were warned in the Torah as follows. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this Torah, a copy of this law. And it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this Torah and not consider himself be better than his brothers and turn from the Torah to the right or to the left. And at the stage in which we are seeing Solomon, the dedication of the temple, Solomon understood the basic fact that there was a king who was, much, who was infinitely greater than he was. And as you look at this prayer, this is in 1 Kings chapter 8. Actually, you see that also in 1 Kings chapter 7. you see that Solomon at this point in his life really understood who was God and who wasn't. Unfortunately, later on in life, he lost track of that. But part of the picture is Solomon built a magnificent structure for God. And as you read what went into the temple, you'll realize that you basically needed a set of sunglasses when you walked into the temple because of the glare from all the gold. The inside of the temple that was roughly 35 feet square and then 35 feet high 
was completely covered by gold. All the worship utensils were either made of gold or else covered with gold. And Solomon doesn't have false modesty. He doesn't say, ah, shucks, you know, I, I just put together this little shack over here. He states, God, I built for you a magnificent building to honor you. But he doesn't park there. He doesn't go from that. He doesn't connect the dots from the magnificent structure to who he is. In other words, he doesn't say, God, I built a magnificent structure, and aren't I cool and clever? Rather, he says, I built you a magnificent structure because you are worthy of having a house that is magnificent. Now, in Solomon's case, it helped that when the temple was completed, the presence of God was so thick, people couldn't stand to walk in it. Now, don't you wish that when we come to worship the Lord that the presence of God would be so awesome that we would have to stand back? That would be quite something, wouldn't it? And then to top it all off, a fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. And everybody at that point got it. They fell on their faces. I think, I think in, in, in their position, uh, I would be very perceptive myself. <laughs> and I would say, okay, this clearly was not um, the weather. It was not thunder. This is something clearly way beyond that. So you can see that Solomon, as he is praying for, for his people and on their behalf, understands that and he has a sense of awe folks he has a sense of awe and and i i i believe we have lost that sense you know it seems to me that the only time uh we have this we're gripped with the sense of awe is when we are in the presence of something spectacular such as when we go to the to uh nature and climb um or, or, or take a, a trip to, to the ocean and, and see the power of the waves and so on, and, and we step back in awe. And Solomon is gripped with a sense of awe, even though he's standing in front of a magnificent structure. And he makes the following statement, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple. So he realizes the magnificence of the structure that he has seen built, and yet he realizes that God really doesn't need it, in a sense, and that God really, it is so beyond us that even the universe, in a sense, can't contain God. Being somewhat OCD, I had to find out how big the universe is. <laughs> According to the latest uh, German supercomputer, the universe contains 500 billion galaxies, each of which 
has hundreds of billions of stars. Now, I, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I have to take their word for it. And then the Earth, the, the uh, square uh, surface area of the Earth is also fairly significant, 200 million square miles. All of that is insignificant in, in Solomon's mind in comparison to who God is. And he makes a fairly Jewish statement. He says, look, on one hand, if the universe can't hold God, how much less this kind of structure that I built and remember that Solomon essentially had absolute power over his people, power of life and death. And yet he realizes that despite his power, the amount of his power over his subject, his power is paltry, is minuscule in comparison to the power of the king of kings, which is why he stands before the people in the presence of God, and he prays on their behalf. And remember, prayer is an admission that you are talking to someone who is superior and you're seeking to receive something from them because you are inferior in a sense of you are much lesser. Which is saying something because, again, Solomon had all that power. And he offers... He continues, you respond favorably to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear and answer the cry of, and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence today. Three basic terms that are used there. One, the standard term in Hebrew for prayer, tefillah, is asking God to intervene in our circumstances. You know, Lord, I'm having a hard time. Would you please reach down and do something? The other one is techina, which means you're in essence asking God to have to have pity. Lord, I'm I am drowning. Would you reach down to grab me? And then the third one is rina, which has a sense of passionate, loud cry. When was the last time you heard? a passionate prayer in public. What you usually have is someone, some script writer, penning some kind of a prayer, giving it to the politician who reads it and then says, okay, let's move on. But Solomon's expectation is that with this prayer, or rather that this prayer would be answered, he continues, may you watch over this people, this temple, day and night, the place of which you said my name will dwell there. In other words, the place where you promised that you would live so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Why is Solomon confident that God will hear his prayers? Think about it. When we pray... Do we have any inkling whether God will answer our prayers? You know, which is why in our culture you have people crossing their fingers and 
and saying, I send, I send my thoughts and prayers with you as if it's some kind of um, electromagnetic uh, uh, power that is transmitted um, via some kind of wires. Solomon stands confidently in, in the assurance that God is going to hear his prayers. Why? Because he built his house according to God's specs, and God said to him, this is where I want to be. And by the way, this is our expectation at Yeshua Tzion. Um, we don't have a place that's covered with gold. And um, we have a relatively modest place. And yet, each Shabbat and each holiday that we, we, uh, we come, we have a very strong expectation that somehow the presence of God will be with us and that his grace and his presence will be here with us. Solomon concludes this prayer by saying, Hear the request of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray for this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Part of the expectation on his part is that his people will blow it. Obviously, in Solomon's case, he did as well. And this is part of our reality that we know on a day-to-day -day that we don't get up and perform flawlessly. Each of us has a basic sense of our own fallibility, our own sin, our weakness, and we come to God in, in humility and say, God, you know that I have the capability to blow it. And would you please cover for that? Which in essence is what the Kol Nidrei prayer does. And so we stand here in God's presence. I hope you realize today when you came this evening that you're not just coming to a service. You're coming to be in God's presence. And yes, we are cognizant of our sin. Yes, we are cognizant of the fact that God is the judge. But we have the conviction that he's a merciful judge. And we are confident that in this humble sanctuary that God will come and dwell with us. Even though he can be a zillion other places, Somehow, we have the confidence that God comes and dwells with us. And as Solomon did, we also want to pray for our people. For us who have a heart for the nation of Israel, we want to pray that God will pour out his mercy upon our people. And that salvation will come to the nation of Israel. Let's do that. Abba Father, Arvinu Malkenu, we thank you that you welcome us into your presence. We by no means are worthy to receive your mercy and your love, and yet you pour out, you lavish your love upon us, that we should be called your children. 
Lord God, today we, as Solomon did, we pray for Israel. As your people, Lord God, seek you today, we thank you for the promise that's in your word that those who seek you earnestly will find you. In the name of Yeshua, we bring our petitions. Amen. Let's continue with the service. Would you turn to your mini machzor? And would you please stand for the Shema? Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Leolam Vayed Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious majesty forever and ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those that would curse you. And pray for those that despitefully use you. These words that I command you today are to be upon your heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And write them on the doorposts of your houses and your gates. Please remain standing as we continue with Yizkor. Yizkor comes from the Hebrew word Zachor, which means to remember. We recite the Kaddish in memory of all who have fallen this last year, all that the Lord who has taken home to be with him. David, if you would begin with the Aramaic. Yitkadal v'yitkadash shmei rabah Bechaye <laughs> Yit barach, yit barach, ve yishtabach, ve yit paar, ve yit koman, ve yit nasay, ve yit adav, ve yit aleh, ve yit alal, shumay de kudusha brechu, leheila mincho bechata ve shihirata, tush bechata ve nechemata, dahamihiran vialma. Vimaru Amen. Yahesh Lamaraba min Shamaya. Vechaim Aleinu. Vialcho Yisrael. Vimaru Amen. Oh, say shalom bimromav. Hu yase shalom Aleinu. Vialcho Yisrael. Vimaru Amen. Oh, say shalom bim romav, hu yaase shalom aleinu, ve'al kol Yisrael, v'imru, v'imru, amen. 
Yase Shalom, Yase Shalom, Shalom Aleinu, Viacho Yisrael, Yase Shalom, Yase Shalom, Shalom Aleinu, Viacho Yisrael. Together in English. Glorified and sanctified be God's great name throughout the world which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and during your days and within the life of the entire house of Israel speedily and soon and say amen. May his great name be blessed forever and to all eternity blessed and praised, glorified and exalted extolled and honored, adored and lauded, be the name of the Holy One, blessed be He. Beyond all the blessings and hymns, praises and consolations that are ever spoken in the world, and say, Amen. May there be abundant peace from heaven and life for us and for all Israel, say, Amen. He who creates peace in His celestial heights, may He create peace for us, and for all Israel, and say, Amen. You may be seated. Why is this service called Kol Nidre? It is based on the Aramaic prayer, Kol Nidre, which means all vows. And in, in a moment or so, we're going to have a traditional tune um, written to the words of this prayer uh, accompanying Psalm 51, which is a penitential prayer, prayer of asking God's forgiveness. Uh, we have chosen not to recite Kol Nidre, and you might say, why? And the answer is, on one hand, on the other hand. Uh, the sentiment behind Kol Nidre is, is asking God's forgiveness for rash vows. Um, we understand that. We also understand the fact that in times of Jewish history, Jewish people uh, were forced, forcibly converted, and underwent um, times when they were uh, required to make awful vows that accompanied the, their uh, baptism um, that's on one hand. On the other hand, um, Scripture, beginning with the Torah and Yeshua's teaching, tells us very emphatically that God expects our yes to be yes and our no to be no. And so we cannot state on Yom Kippur Eve that our vows are no longer, that our vows are null and void which is in essence what Kol Nidre prayer does, but rather we feel the responsibility before God to say, if we make vows, we want to be sure that we fulfill and pursue those. And so that has been our commitment on Yom Kippur Eve to recognize the origin, the source perhaps of Kol Nidre at the same time to, to demonstrate our commitment to God and to each other, their vows are absolutely essential to not just to maintain, but as well to fulfill. So um, 
Would you, if you have your Bibles, would you like to ask that you turn to Psalm 51 and um, listen as both for the music and, um, and the words. mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall, shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, they shall offer bulls on your altar. This section of our service is called Vidui, which in Hebrew means confession. You may not be used to the notion of corporate confession, um, and uh, just want to take a moment and explain 
that there are all kinds of sins listed. And we're not suggesting that you take ownership for what is not your sin. Uh, as the saying goes, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't try to wear it. However, um, part of what we see when God brings people together is a sense of unity to where we recognize not only our own individual sins, but as well our sins corporately, that we share uh, not only our strengths, our glories in a sense, but also our, our sins. And so just recognize the fact that this is part of corporate identity and and let let the Lord speak to you through this section, this vidui. This is the responsive reading on page two. Our God and God of our fathers, may our prayer reach you. Do not ignore our plea, for we are not insolent to say to you, we are just and have not sinned. Indeed, we have sinned. All? Aggressively and standardly. We've acted brazenly and viciously and fraudulently. We've acted willfully, scornfully, obstinately. We've acted perniciously, disdainfully, and erratically. Our Messiah said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we have been haughty in spirit, inflated with pride in our own self-sufficiency. We have forgotten how needy we are. Our Messiah said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We have ourselves from those around us, from their pain, their needs, their loneliness, and their suffering. <clears throat> Our Messiah said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But we have valued toughness over gentleness. We have too often chosen to look for ourselves. Like the prodigal son, we want what we want, and we want it now. Our Messiah said, Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. But we have hungered after the pleasures, the prestige, the possessions of this world. Like Esau, we have too often despised our birthright in favor of more immediate gratification. Our Messiah said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. But we have too often presided as harsh judges over the lives of others. We've been quick to fix blame. We've exhausted ourselves from any obligation to care or help. Turning away from your good precepts and laws has not profited us. You are just in all that has come upon us, and you have dealt truthfully. But we have acted wickedly. You know the mysteries of the universe and the dark secrets of every living soul. You search all the inmost chambers of man's conscience. Nothing escapes you. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Now may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, to forgive all our sins and to pardon all our iniquities. 
for the sin we committed against you callously, for the sin we committed in your sight unintentionally, for the sin we committed against you by idle talk, for the sin we committed in your sight by unbelief, for the sin committed in your sight knowingly and deceitfully, for the sin committed against you by offensive speech, for the sin committed in your sight by oppressing a fellow man. Sin Hear my cry, Adonai. Let your ears pay attention to the sounds of my pleading. Adonai, if you kept record of sins, who, Adonai, could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you will be feared. I wait longingly for you, Adonai. I put my hope in his word. Everything in me waits for Adonai, more than guards on watch wait for morning. More than guards on watch wait for morning. Israel, put your hope in Adonai. For grace is found with Adonai. And with him is unlimited redemption. He will redeem Israel from all their wrongdoing. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We are all like sheep when astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid upon him the guilt of all of us. Though he was mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away, and none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with the rich man. Although he had done no violence, and had said nothing deceptive. 
Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offering, and he will prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher nantan lanu, et derech ha-Yeshua, v'Yeshua mishichenu. Amen. All together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has granted us the way of salvation through our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. The next part is Shuva. <clears throat> or Teshuvah, excuse me. How easy it is to become complacent, to become indifferent to the Lord's demands for holiness in our lives. Let us allow the Lord's probing light to shine altogether. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Repentance must become part of our lifestyle so that we can fulfill our Messiah's instructions. the 18 benedictions and during these prayers there are lots of issues that are subjects and categories that are covered but one of the biggest things that I look at this point is coming and asking the Lord for those in our lives that are lost whether they're loved ones people who are our neighbors people at our work this is a time to know that as we stand before God he has a plan for each of these individuals. There is an insert in our bulletin if you need different areas of where our prayer is to be focused at this time. So this is a time of quiet prayer before the Lord. 